The following presentation is a National Film Board of Canada and Access Alberta production. Makes no difference where I go, you're the best hometown I know. Hello, Calgary. Hello, Calgary. You know we love you. Makes no difference where I go, you're the best hometown I Welcome to the Alberta Advantage. I'm your host, Kate Jacobson, and on Team Advantage today is Sean. Hello. Karen. Hello. And Clinton. Hi, hi. Some of our most media-savvy team members. So, team, did you know that Alberta used to have a publicly-owned educational television channel? Yes. Not really. Yes, I did. And it's true. It was called Access Alberta. We're going to go over its all-too-brief history, its untimely demise at the hands of a certain Alberta premier. Thank you. And the current condition of public media in Canada. We'll have some ideas and examples of how our public broadcasting can be improved and benefit more people more genuinely, rooted in its longtime ideals and goals, plus some historical and international models. So before we dive into any more of the details, we should take a minute or two to differentiate between terms like public, state-owned, community, nonprofit, and commercial broadcasting. Often we'll see or hear a few of these terms used really interchangeably, and we might do this too throughout the episode, but we kind of want to add some clarity up front to what these words actually mean. So to give you a sort of straightforward definition of what public broadcasting is, uh, public broadcasting is uh, either radio or television or electronic media outlets whose uh, main mission is to provide a public service that is funded by the taxpayers in some capacity. So, for example, CBC is Canada's public broadcaster. It is uh, funded by a government grant that is based off of money that is collected from taxpayers uh, in combination with advertising revenue, which uh, we'll talk about the effects of that later on in the episode. And you can contrast that with some kind of publicly owned stations that exist in the United States, like PBS and PBR, which aren't actually really publicly owned. They're nonprofit media organizations that receive federal and state funding. Plus, they receive donations from private corporations and individual citizens during their famous pledge drives. They can be a little bit more regional and more community-based and funded in a way that CBC just isn't. And that's because CBC is centrally administered with a national content focus, despite some local news coverage here and there. Most countries, apart from the U.S., have state-owned broadcasters. And in Commonwealth countries, a lot of the stations and channels that are federally funded are modeled on the British Broadcasting Corporation, so the BBC, which was started in 1922. On a more local scale, most people in Canada, apart from very young, you know, tiny post-2000s babies, have a memory of uh, community access TV, which is usually funded by provincial governments and then privatized and run by cable conglomerates before vaporizing into the generic cable selections we have today with content identical to what's on commercial TV. Commercial TV and radio, of course, wrap content around literal commercials. I mean, that's why we call it commercial TV, uh, uh, similar to uh, radio stations that you hear these days, other than community radio stations. And one can argue very strongly that the purpose, which is, of course, in this capitalist system, profit, shapes the content that's actually being aired. You know, if you 
aren't getting the advertising money, you aren't getting paid. And you aren't getting that advertising money if the advertisers don't approve of the content that you are airing. So whether that's considered unprofitable in some capacity, objectionable in some capacity, or uh, uh, too experimental, uh, if it's not going to make money, if people aren't going to watch it, or if the right people aren't going to watch it, advertisers aren't going to fund it. It's not going to get made. And that's the limit of commercial television and commercial radio. So the hope would be that publicly funded media could then pick up the gaps that are left by commercial media. I mean, if we're going to have a system where we're going to allow uh, ads and advertising revenue to dictate the content that we see, we might as well have some way to pick up the uh, things that they leave behind. So with that in mind, let's dive a little bit into the history of Access Alberta. So while the CBC has been airing publicly owned television channels since 1958, they have not been an educational broadcaster or anything that resembles an educational broadcaster for a very long time. During the 1970s, the CBC had already transformed into what it is now, a channel that is almost indistinguishable from privately owned channels due to its reliance on ad revenue to sustain itself. So there was a need for educational broadcasting across Canada, and some provincial governments took up this responsibility for themselves. Since educational programming isn't usually commercially viable, which as Sean was discussing earlier, this type of programming is usually a prime candidate for public funding. In 1973, shortly after Lougheed's election, uh, the Alberta government launched access through the newly created Alberta Educational Communications Corporation. Uh, the purpose of the channel was to be educational program, uh, at the time mostly the domain of what is now Radio Canada Telechannel. Uh, Access was launched alongside CKUA, which had been operated by the University of Alberta. CKUA was Canada's first public broadcaster. Uh, it's currently community-owned. The Alberta uh, Educational Communications Corporation also took over uh, such experimental uh, projects that had already been established, like the Metropolitan Edmonton Educational Television Association, or META, and the Calgary and Regional Educational Television Association, or CARAT. I love CARAT. That's such a good acronym. <laughs> Delightful. So while in the beginning, access was available only through cable TV because uh, they had not been granted any actual airspace to broadcast, access was given a proper on-air channel in Calgary in 1984. It was Channel 13. And Edmonton in 1986. It was Channel 9. So anyone with a TV antenna could access it for free. So the idea of educational television almost seems kind of quaint these days. This really was still a time when the public conception of what television was and what it could be were not yet set in stone in the commercialized television dystopia that we know today. I only really watch cable and like commercial television when I travel for work and I always turn it on when I'm in like motel room and it's always just like, what the fuck is uh, happening on television? Yeah, it's a complete nightmare. And it, this was not how television necessarily started. A, a lot like radio, in the beginning, television was thought of as this uh, revolutionary uh, technology that had a potential to expand the uh, quote unquote public sphere. So while we know which group kind of won out in the end when it comes to how we conceptualize and think of television, this was still a time when governments were really eager to take advantage of broadcast television to provide content that kind of fell outside of what market demand 
created. So using television, governments could fairly cheaply and pretty efficiently distribute educational content through a medium that was somewhat like cheap or free to access and almost universally experienced. Not quite, but pretty close. And we also have to keep in mind that this was a time before the internet. So entertaining and accessible educational material was not particularly easy to come by, especially for rural Albertans. Yeah, if you imagine a person like in the middle of nowhere, uh, and on like Alberta farming community in the 1970s and 80s, there's not a whole lot of chances to be able to get good quality educational uh, documentaries, just like in a way that you can access without driving really far or uh, paying a lot of money. So what type of programming was actually on Access Alberta? This was actually a really hard question to answer because uh, there isn't like, uh, we'll talk about more later, but uh, the National Film Board of Canada has a really amazing archive online that you can browse and it has tons of their old stuff. There's nothing like that for Access Alberta. Uh, the best you can find is old tapes and old programming lists sort of scattered throughout archives across Alberta in universities and government buildings and things like that. But as much as I can put together and as much as I could actually get access to these things, it seems like there is a really wide really impressive selection of programming available on Access. So from what we could see based on our uh, archive delving, these included titles like The Tree, A Living Community, and Cinnamon Story, A Responsibility to Animals. Uh, that was about uh, uh, animal abuse. A bit of a dark topic, but you know, oh important for education. There was programming about bird watching, uh, China's Szechuan province, um, medical legal issues, Canadian history, puberty, and everything in between. In, in general, the content lined up with the uh, Albertan curriculum at the time, uh, from elementary school to high school. And uh, a lot of the programming was either funded by the government and produced by private production houses in Canada, or it was bought from companies in the U.S., or some of it was even made by the CBC and the National Film Board. Access Alberta also aired a special that would not pass muster in the Jason Kenney era called Access Alberta, the Renewable Society. There were a few things that we actually managed to find tapes of in libraries at the U of C and sit down and watch. Now, the tapes were pretty badly damaged, but they were still watchable. And it was pretty impressive, the type of content that we saw. We saw this uh, program called Tales of Wasakachak, which was this storybook theater type show about Cree folklore, where uh, this woman would tell a story about an animal and how it got a specific feature. And the story would be animated by these puppets and voiced by different uh, community theater actors. And it was actually really charming and really well put together, um, despite the VHS tape being in absolutely terrible condition and often just cutting out completely at times. It was just cool to see a Regina-produced puppet show retelling traditional Cree stories about how frogs got their long legs or why bees have stingers. We also found an episode of a series entitled My People, My Partners, which spotlighted notable Indigenous people in Canada and discussed contemporary issues in Indigenous life. Uh, and the episode that we watched was about Cree artist George Littlechild, and it discussed issues like residential schools and addiction and the 60s scoop. And what was very interesting is that these are issues that we really barely touch on today and get really swept under the rug and that this was made in 1990. Yeah, and it wasn't perfect, but it was making an extremely valiant attempt to discuss these things and approach these issues seriously, which is more than a lot of things you see on television. Based on a blooper reel we found on YouTube, it also seems like there was a lot of in-between programming. 
that would air on Access that would include segments with the hosts, performing skits, or introducing programming. So this reminds me of uh, the filler that you would get on YTV that I definitely watched extensively as a child. And they had like memorable ongoing little puppet shows like yeah. John mentioned and stuff. I think it's a similar sort of vibe. Uh, I, I think it's something you don't really see a lot on TV these days. But uh, uh... Well, yeah, because I've read of like an oral history of YTV and they say it's just literally they didn't have budget and they had a lot of time and a lot of like bored young people. So I imagine it'd be very similar. I think it was exactly that situation. Um, <laughs> based on that that same blooper video, you can tell that behind the scenes, uh, Access Alberta was run by a lot of really bright, idealistic young people who were having a lot of fun making this educational programming for the youth of Alberta. Um, it seemed like it would have been a really cool place to work. And it's really sad that it's not here anymore. It probably won't surprise any of our listeners to learn that Access did not survive the Klein Massacre of Public Services in 1993 after a review because cooked up panels and commissions from right-wing governments that are just out to destroy public services are truly nothing new. The Albertan government decided to stop funding Access Alberta past 1994. In 1995, all the assets were sold off to Learning and Skills Television of Alberta Limited, which does not have a fun acronym. Uh, and that is owned by a company called Chum Limited. Uh, who now, that, that is a fun acronym. It is. Chum. It's a delightful yeah. one. Oh, yeah. Uh, they own much music and a few other channels. Uh, Access kept its educational mandate, but now was owned privately. Um, well, Access chugged along for a little bit under private ownership. Chum was eventually bought out by uh, CTV, which is yes. better known as Bell, because Bell is the owner of CTV Media. And this was in 2007. It was rebranded to the A channel in 2008, but that didn't last very long, and it was rebranded to CTV2 in 2011, which is the form it takes today. It really went on to have kind of this final death at the hands of the CRTC, because even though it was privatized, CTV2 still had a mandate from the CRTC to include educational programming, which was a part of the condition of the channel's original sale. The CRTC is basically a government body, and it grants airspace that is based on specific mandates, and it can revoke licenses if those mandates are not met. But of course, Bell, which was the company that had bought out uh, CTV2 Chum Access, did not really like this. And they didn't like this because educational programming doesn't make much money. And Bell wanted Alberta's CTV2 programming to line up with the other CTV2 channels that they were purchasing in other parts of the country. And so, as they have done many times before, and as I'm sure they will do many times again, Bell complained to the CRTC to have the rules changed. Sounds like Bell could have used some educational programming on the value of educational programming. That's a great point, Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. The application itself reads, uh, to just give you the first relevant part, Bell also requests the deletion of the requirement that CTV2 Alberta operate as an educational broadcaster and of existing limitations related to the amount of advertising the station can air. So essentially, they were saying, please, CRTC, uh, please make it so that uh, we can not have to air all this unprofitable educational programming and we can crank up the amount of ads and uh, really start making money. And of course, the CRTC, a responsible, thoughtful regulator that has the best interests of Canadians in heart, said, of course, Bell, you can go ahead and do that. So this was uh, the CRT's response to uh, Bell's request, which they issued in 2017. So they said, for a number of reasons, including the fact that apparently 
Knowledge Network, British Columbia's educational broadcaster. Uh, apparently, they were in support of Bell Media's request because they were involved in an ongoing discussion with the government of Alberta regarding relaunching a publicly owned and operated educational broadcast service. So this was, I think, very interesting that there was this idea that maybe there would be another publicly owned broadcasting service in Alberta taking the place of this privately owned CTV2. So because of this, and because of, you know, Bell asked very nicely, the CRDC went ahead and thumbs up the decision to allow the designation of an educational service for CTV2 to be revoked and allowing them to pump up all of the advertising. So they said designation of an educational service is a purview of the province and territories in this regard, the government of Alberta did not intervene in the proceeding, but did send a letter to Bell Media, which it did not object to the changes proposed for CTV2 Alberta. Further, Knowledge Network stated that it is in talks with the government of Alberta regarding relaunching a publicly owned and operated educational broadcast service in the province. In light of the above, the commission removes the conditions of license relating to the educational aspects of the CTV2 service. So where did that Knowledge Network deal go? As we know, that never happened, and I think because of the government that we currently have in Alberta, it will probably continue to never happen. I do not think that the Knowledge Network, a publicly owned Albertan educational network, is right around the door uh, in Jason Kenney's Alberta. I think that deal is dead, and with the CRT's decision, there is now no longer any educational content on the Albertan airwaves. I would like to take this time to talk about what my show notes say is the great Satan, CRTC. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> because while I ultimately think, of, of course, it is uh, Klein um, gutting uh, uh, public services, that's the ultimate you know, uh, reason for the death of access television, that the CRTC could have stepped in and made sure that none of this happened in the first place. And they decided not to, because I'm not going to use the very uh, crude language I have written here. Um, but uh, they're the undesirable fools who are supposed to be regulating Canada's media and broadcasting environment, but they absolutely suck at it. I like to imagine that if the CRTC is is Satan, then Michael Geist is just like the guy on the motorcycle like going to fight Satan on the cover of Bad Out of Hell 2. So while Sean won't use the crude language that is in the document, I will. The CRTC are the dumb who are supposed to be regulating Canada's media and broadcasting environment, and frankly, they suck at it. So to give you a bit of history about where the CRTC came from, they started after something called the Aired Report, which was a commission uh, that was sent out in 1928 uh, by the Lion Mackenzie King as a way to measure the problem of Canada's cultural sovereignty in fake. relation to the U.S. Um, uh, Kate, you say that that is fake. You want to follow up on that? Canada is fake. So yes. as a response, Bennett created the Canadian Radio and Broadcasting Commission in 1932, but that was soon replaced by the CBC that we know and have a very complex relationship with in 1936 after King had returned to power. So at the time, the CBC was both a public broadcaster and the country's regulatory body, but they were split into two separate entities in 1958, the CBC and the CRTC. Something that's worth noting here is that the reason they were split in the first place was because of complaints by private broadcasters, a recurring theme that has dominated much of the CRTC's history. 
So the CRTC's purported job is to regulate the media environment of Canada in the best interest of Canadians. This includes things like granting broadcast licenses, approving mergers and sales, and enforcing Canadian content requirements. But in reality, they don't really do any of that. The Big Three is a name you see in a lot of literature about media concentration in Canada, and it refers to the three largest broadcasters slash cable providers slash internet providers slash phone providers slash a million different things that sort of dominate the Canadian landscape. It's Bell, which owns CTV, Shaw, which owns Global, and Rogers, which owns City TV. There's also Quebec Corps, but that's a different story. Uh, these channels also happen to be owned by the same companies that, as I said, provide our cable, our phone services, our radio stations, our internet. And together, they own vast swaths of the Canadian media landscape. So the CRTC doesn't only tolerate the insane levels of media and telecommunication vertical integration and ownership concentration, but they actively aid and abet it. They generally allow these three companies to buy up and control whatever other companies they want, while simultaneously making it harder for potential competitors to enter Canada's media ecosystem through the way it awards new channels and broadcast licenses, which is it usually doesn't. So the most CRTC will do when facing the potential for a massive takeover of a company by a member of the big three is making them sell off some of the channels or stations or assets that are owned by the company they are purchasing, but usually to another member of the big three. And to be fair, the CRTC kind of has its hands tied by Supreme Court rulings that dictate what they can and can't regulate, things like cable channels or streaming services. And every time it does try to hold these companies accountable, it is faced with this massive legal backlash from these giant, powerful companies. Bell in particular constantly challenges basically everything the CRTC tries to do in court, and they often win. So just last year, Bell was petitioning Trudeau to overturn a CRTC ruling that lowered the rates large network can impose on smaller companies that want to use their broadband networks. And if history is any indication, they will probably get what they were asking for eventually. So I think it would behoove us to think of the CRTC almost as a captured regulator. It's hard to say from looking at it whether it has been kind of captured in a very hostile way through these extremely expensive legal challenges that the big three are just so much better financially equipped to deal with, or if it's being kind of captured by the structure of the state under capitalist society. But it is very much a captured regulator that doesn't actually do anything to deal with these basically like bloodthirsty monopoly firms that love capitalism and love vertical integration and love just owning everything. From my analysis, it's a little bit of both of those things that you mentioned. I think that Bell does have a lot of money. Rogers has a lot of money. Uh, Tellus and Shaw have a lot of money to mount these legal challenges, but that the government doesn't ever seem to be that interested in actually fighting back. Absolutely. Yeah, they don't give the CRTC the teeth it needs to actually do anything. So whenever it does try to implement any sort of uh, uh, anti-monopoly measure, uh, it is usually just uh, bullied until it submits and rolls over. The unfortunate side effect of all of this is the creation of this media environment that further perpetuates a capitalist ideology. Because when a handful of bloodthirsty monopolistic firms united only in their ideological commitments to capitalism control our media, then our media tends to be shaped 
by that ideological environment. Our belief is that we should move towards culture and education and broadcasting and radio as a commons, not as IPs and intellectual properties shaped by the need to, you know, sell ads and tickets and subscriptions and merchandise. Like many things, all should be held in common. It can be easy to dismiss the importance of something like educational television in an era where almost everyone has access to the Internet. But educational television is still actually very important to a lot of people. It is accessible. It is there. People watch a lot of television. Children watch a lot of television. It is on all the time in a lot of homes. And having it be things that, I don't know, teach children about like Cree folklore instead of things that are selling them more action figures (laughs) is actually, I think, a pretty reasonable thing to want from our society. It's just like a good for our society. You know, it would make a better, stronger society. I would be remiss if we did not mention community television and community media before the end of this episode. So we've been talking a lot about publicly funded media, um, but that's a different beast from community media, which is generally smaller scale, more local, funded by community donations uh, instead of funded by uh, taxpayer money. Um So community TV can be really, really cool. But unfortunately, similar to public TV, uh, it has uh, kind of gone to the wayside. It's a bit of a disaster right now. And it also seems like the startup and production costs of radio versus television has meant that community radio stations like CJSW, where we produce this podcast or this podcast, can be sustained by community funding and involvement and volunteering. TV just has such a large capital cost, complex regulations, complex infrastructure, that it's really almost impossible to start without even a sliver of government funding. What Access Alberta was obviously could not really exist in the exact form that it existed in the 70s, 80s, until its untimely demise in the 90s, largely because of the rise of the internet. So we have access to archives, to new content, to foreign streaming services. There's so much content there. But I think a big difference that Sean has mentioned before between something like what Access Alberta was and what we have on the internet is that A, the internet is something that is more expensive than television. It's also not super accessible in a lot of rural parts in the province that really don't have access to broadband. And also... You have to seek out what you find on the internet. And because of algorithms, it has the tendency to create silos and repetition in the types of content that you uh, experience and look at and perceive. And what is so great about Access Alberta and what would be so great about a hypothetical modern Albertan public TV station is that it would literally just be broadcasted in a form that would hopefully be democratically decided, community run, would have like really great input from important stakeholders, but you know, it would be being broadcasted. You wouldn't have to go find it and it could have a really wide variety of content and would hopefully actually lead people to things that were new or interesting or exciting or broaden their horizons in some way. And of course, like any sort of modern version of Access Alberta would also be online and would also take advantage of modern channels. It would probably also have podcasts and YouTube videos on a YouTube channel. And a TV app that you can look at at parties when you want to have fun and learn about commodities. Exactly. And one program where it's just Jason Kenny eating a Safeway rotisserie chicken for one full hour. That's going to be the purgatory he's trapped in after 
we're done with him. Just can constantly eating the rotisserie chicken on it's TV like forever. It's been in somebody's car for too long, and it's like a little gummy. Yeah, it's maybe Aww. bad, but you're not sure. But you, no, you bought it already, you know, so you have like to fine. eat it. You know, yeah. it's like fine, but you're not like happy about it. So to conclude this episode of the Alberta Advantage, we are going to go around the table, and everyone is going to share what kind of television program they would like to see on a hypothetical modern Albertan public TV station if it was good. Starting with Clinton. All right, here's my show. It is a mashup of The Wire and the hit Coen Brothers movie, Burn After Reading. And all it is is a dramatization of those idiot RCMP officers who decided to take the two drug addicts and convince them they were terrorists. And then they arrested them for terrorism. And then it all ends with a judge saying, this was against the law and giving the RCMP a loads of Good. So mine is an anthology sci-fi series that's based exclusively on the work of Canadian speculative writers. Uh, some examples would be Kim, Kim Stanley Robinson, William Gibson, S.M. Sterling, and Cory Doctorow. I think it would be amazing. Gibson show would be amazing. Damn. Oh, yeah. you, you sold one of mine, which was a Neuromancer miniseries. Oh, well, uh, that wouldn't be one of the episodes of the know. show. Um, but uh, I had a backup one, so it's all good, uh, which is uh, essentially like a uh, big budget, like modern version of that Cree storybook theater TV show that used to run in Access Alberta, just maybe with a big budget and like an animation studio and uh, maybe like guest animators that really went experimental. And maybe you hire a bunch of indigenous people to write and animate it. I, I don't know. I think that that'd be really cool. And uh, I, I think a lot of people would want to watch that. So my idea for a hypothetical television program that could exist on a new Access Alberta is they pay me, preferably, or someone else who is similarly enthusiastic about grain elevators to just tour around the province with a bunch of like experts in the construction of like grain elevators from both the technical side, but also in like the history of like the wheat pools and grain farming in Alberta. And we just go to grain elevators that still exist in Alberta before they get torn down or destroyed. And we talk about what they meant to the local community and we look inside them and see how they work and what they were once like and when they were built. And it's super fun and everyone loves it. And we have a great time. And it's called the grain train. Thank you, Clinton. You're welcome. Yes, it's called the grain train and it whips. So on behalf of everyone here at the Alberta Advantage, thank you so much for listening to this episode about Access Alberta. And I hope you all have a wonderful day out there. Take care and goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Makes no difference where I go. You're the best hometown I know. Hello, Calgary. Hello.